Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Rick Linklater. Hey, thanks. Thanks for coming out and hanging out. So congratulations on a beautifully made movie. And um, first, I, I want to ask you about last night, about the premiere, because that was, um, an, uh, from what I understand, an incredible event in Austin, Texas. Yeah, so. I talked to 20th Century Fox into doing the premiere instead of in L.A. Uh, we did it in Austin, and we actually did it in the theater. We shot two scenes in the, in the movie in the old theaters, in this old theater in Austin. So it was a really big event. Texas hadn't seen anything like it. <laughs> they did it old, we had these old Studebakers that the cast drove up in and, you know, they had the old lights out front and all this. Everybody was freaking out. It was weird. All these teenage girls just screaming for like Matthew and Ethan. <laughs> Matthew! It was wild. I was like, what world am I in? But I got up there. I was just kind of overwhelmed, but I said, um, I think if the Newtons were alive today, this is the kind of premiere that they would expect. You know? so, <laughs> Now, math, both Matthew and Ethan go way back. Ethan, I guess, was born in Austin, and Matthew... Yeah, Matthew um, was born in Uvalde, Texas, where the Newtons are from. His um, uncle actually bought a horse from Joe Newton later in life. So, <laughs> it was, <laughs> yeah, real close to home. You cast Matthew, his first real major film role, of course, in Days to Confuse. Mm-hmm. Just talk a little bit about how you discovered him and... Um, yeah, he just, know, what he you just came his... in on an audition. Um, the casting director I was working with had... Met him in a bar and, uh, <laughs> and said, Hey, you should just come in. Cause I was casting a lot of non-actors and it didn't occur to me Matthew wasn't an actor. He just came in and he, he had moved to Longview, Texas, which I was from uh, Huntsville, Texas, kind of these East Texas towns. And he came in and he said, Listen, man, I ain't this guy, but I know this guy, you know, mm-hmm. that character he played, the old uh, guy hanging out, still dating high school girls as he gets older and older, you know, one in every town, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> so that was a lot of fun, and that part was really pretty a, a small part. I didn't really he didn't really have any lines past like right. the uh, beer bust and on. But I rewrote the script because I, I liked him so much, and he was bringing so much to it. We were kind of inventing scenes, and you know it was really fun hmm. improving. I just I just liked him. Now let me ask about the the ending first. First, of course, the um, footage, the Johnny Carson footage, and the documentary footage. Yeah, that's that's priceless. Just where, I mean, when did did you see that bef- um, early on in the process of working on the film? Or yeah, when I um, I had read a Smithsonian article about the Newtons. This is about four years ago, and I'm a lifelong Texan, and I had never heard of them, and no one I, no one's really heard of them. If they say they have, they're lying. I mean, no one. <laughs> they're really completely obscure. But um, I went and met with Claude, the writer of the article. He became one of my co-screenwriters. Right. And um, he had he shot that documentary footage of Willis. There was a short documentary he made that has never really gotten out there, but I want to try to get it released on video because mm. it has Joe and Willis. They were the surviving brothers. Yeah. He shot this in the mid-'70s. It's pretty fascinating stuff. And, and then the Carson clip, I had heard he had been on the show, so we got in touch with Carson Productions, and they never hardly license their stuff to movies. They just don't do that. Mm. But um, Johnny remembered Joe, huh. and he really liked him, and he let us do it. It's, people are like, oh, you're never going to get that. And I go, I don't know. I don't know. And we got it. I just huh. I am so thankful to, to Johnny. But it kind of makes you 
I mean, Carson's so great. You really miss him. He's really, yeah. really great. I'm mean, not yeah. that Leno's bad or anything, but mm-hmm. you know <laughs> that. But just the fact that they would bring in people like Americana, you know, some yeah. oh, you know, some old bank robber, an 80 year old guy. Let's bring him on the show. Right. You know, they don't, they don't do that much anymore. <laughs> now, did Matthew base his performance at all? It's incredible how much the real Willis. Sort of seems yeah. like Matthew, Matthew plus performs. fifty years equals that guy, right? Right, <laughs> and that's the real Willis was a, a lot like that. I mean, like Matthew just kind of, yeah. and he's kind of crazy. I mean, he's sort of just his eyes are flashing. That's what I love him. I mean, right. you see this? He's eighty-six years old here, yeah. and he's still angry about that two hundred thousand dollars <laughs> that idiot left. He's like, Ugh. you know. <laughs> And just unrepentant to the day he died. He and Joe were very different. Um, Joe kind of regretted it the way he does in, you know, in the movie we show. Yeah. He has these, you know, a lot of apprehension. You know, he yeah. doesn't, moral problems, you know. Yeah. And um, to the end of his day, he sort of resented Willis, I think, for dragging him into all that. Mm-hmm. Later in their lives, they would go on these, like, historical, um, oh, historical panels, historical yeah. conventions. And they'd be, like, the two, you know, oldest surviving train robbers. That's what they were, mm-hmm. were called. And... That have these discussions where Willis Joe would say, "Yeah, when he sent me that, you know, hundred dollars, or it was like I don't know how much money, but to come, he had a job for me. He said that was my downfall right there." And Willis <laughs> would go, "Hell, boy, that was your upfall. You know, that that made your life. You wouldn't be here now. You know." So <laughs> they had this between them forever. You said that you um, work with Claude Stanis. You wrote the book about the Newton Boys. How did you get interested in this to begin with? I mean, how did you? How did, did I get interested? How did you? Yeah, and decide that you wanted to make a movie of oh, this well, material. I just love the story so much. I love those characters. Mm-hmm. I guess being a, a Texan, I always knew I was going to make some kind of real Texas roots, kind of Western. I mean, I love Westerns and mm-hmm. gangster films. And, you know, anybody loves movies, loves those genres, of course. So um, I always knew I would do that someday, but it just took me finding this story. Mm-hmm. And it meant everything to me that it was true. I, I wouldn't have right. been interested, I don't think, or probably couldn't have invented it. I mean, it's, it's yeah. everything in the movie, we tried to be as historically accurate as is you could, I mean, everything in it is true. We didn't invent characters. They're all, all the major characters are historic. I mean, they're all based on research close to what their characters were like. Everything in it happened. You know, like Willis's gun jamming in Toronto right. turns into hmm. a street brawl. The right. horse in the middle of the two banks that explode. You know, yeah. Doc actually, you know, you couldn't, in, in writing a script, you couldn't say, okay, let's shoot this guy four, four or five times and hmm. he lives. You go, no, that's, that's not really realistic. You can't do that. Yeah. So, but you know, if you stick to the facts, it's like, it's crazy, but it's, it's all true. So anyway, I, I just found my way into it. I just, yeah. I just love the characters and got really obsessed with it and hmm. felt it was my story to make. How long ago was that? Was it before you made Suburbia? It was, was it years ago? Yeah, it ago? was, um, four years ago. Mm-hmm. This month, even, huh. that, um, I, First met Claude, read the article, yeah. and my producer and uh, co-producer yeah. and one of my co-screenwriters, we all went and met with Claude and just started working with him. And then I went off to Vienna and did Before Sunrise, but I right. couldn't wait to get back and do, hmm. you know, Newton Boys. I, I thought that would be my next project. But it it was really tough to get the project going because, right. like, I knew it would be a bigger budget movie. I was seen as the low-budget guy, you know. Right. And so it was, I knew this one would cost the money just to recreate the 20s and the whole look of, what the film needed so it was really it was difficult to get off basically no one really wanted to do it mm-hmm. and uh but it eventually it ended up at uh 20th century fox and then they pushed it a year or pushed it back because of um casting I, the cast wasn't coming together to their liking mm-hmm. it didn't seem like big enough names or, or mm-hmm. whatever 
because Ethan was aboard, then he took another movie, and no one, I don't know, it was just, right. it wasn't meant to be that year, so it got pushed, and I did Suburbia in the, in mm-hmm. the interim, and then came right into Newton Boys, and it, it happened again. But that was a good, to get delayed that year was actually good. It gave me another year to sort mm-hmm. of think about it. Mm-hmm. And then I eventually got my ideal cast. Everyone in there is who I wanted the first wow. time around, yeah. and a lot of those people weren't available that first time around. Hmm. Or were kind of falling out schedule-wise. So it was kind of all meant to be that it happened when it did. Now, what convinced Claude that you were the right person to do it? Because apparently other people had approached him over oh, the yeah. years yeah. and trying to make this into a movie. That was the big um, hurdle because, yeah, he had been approached. He was the literary executor of Willis's um, estate, or he had the story mm-hmm. rights. And he had been approached over the last, off and on over 20 years. And it was always people coming in, you know, like, Hollywood <laughs> comes in and says, "Oh, we want to buy this story," and then, but they want to make it a different kind of story. Like, let's get the Texas Rangers in here and make it a cop and robber thing. And you know, Claude was like, "That's not the story." And, and I think he liked the idea that I liked the story so much. Everything I had read, I was like, "No, this is the story. I don't want to change anything. I yeah. want to tell this story as accurately as possible and just try to make it work as a film." Mm-hmm. That was my goal. So he liked that, but. um you know, he wanted to learn a little more about me as a filmmaker, so he wanted to see some of my films. I said, okay, this is where I lose it, you know. This, 70, <laughs> this, this 78-year-old man, he likes me, he likes my passion for the project, but uh-oh, now he wants to see a film. So he, he wanted to see Slacker. I said, okay, this is the end. But, <laughs> but he loved it. He loved it. Hmm. Yeah, he, he, we had a really intelligent conversation about it. He says, you know, just, I mean, Claude's like the hippest, uh, you know. 80-year-old guy I know. <laughs> he really now, is. Now, how much, uh, the fact that it's, uh, of course, the first unusual thing about the film is the ending, the fact that it's a happy ending for a, for a movie about gangsters. Well, um, happy, they're walking off to prison, so. Right, it's, but they, it's, they're not, mixed. it's they're not, not like Bonnie dead. and Clyde. Yeah, they're not dead. Yeah. And, and, yeah, it's just, I told everyone it's, it had to be sort of a Huckleberry Finn ending. Like, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be. Neither a happy nor a mm-hmm. tragic ending, you know, would be appropriate. It's somewhere, yeah. you know, sort of a bittersweet. But, you know, their triumph was, of course, living to be old men. Right. You know, and, and getting lights in it. A slap on the wrist, basically. Yeah. When you made Dazed and Confused, you wrote a very funny journal about you dealing with Universal Studios and, and the back and forth and, and um, some of the problems. And finally, you basically made your movie. Yeah. And what was it like in this case? I mean, I guess... Um, you know, working with, was this the, the film you always intended? Were, mm-hmm. were you getting yeah, um, feedback from the studio, do this, do that? Or? No, it gets easier every film. I think mm-hmm. Dazed was kind of a struggle because that was the biggest leap I ever made. I mean, going from a privately financed film like Slacker, just me and, you know, mm-hmm. like credit cards and loans yeah. from family and stuff, you know, that yeah. type of, like, off independent <laughs> film, right. um, to doing a film financed by Universal, you know, right. that was a big jump. And I think, even though that was officially my third film and mm-hmm. I had it all in my head and I knew what I wanted, they kind of treat you like you don't know what you're doing or they mm-hmm. want you to, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, I had less respect, I think, as a filmmaker. So it just, I think I described in that thing, it just takes up about a lot of, uh, it's really psychically draining. Yeah. But you get your film made. I mean, but yeah. I realized just how, it was a real challenge yeah. to to get that made and get my film made. Mm-hmm. And I realized how strong you have to be. It's nothing easy about it. And yeah. parallel with the studio giving you a lot of hell, it's kind of there's, you know, just the whole film world seems to, I, I just sensed the only time in my whole, like, film life that I, I sensed everyone sort of wanted me to fail or something, wanted it to suck. Hmm. You know, like, rumor, rumors were out, like, oh, it's terrible. You know, I was like, I just wanted everybody to see the movie because I was really yeah. happy with it. Hmm. But 
I just, you know, it was a weird dynamic. It's that sophomore slump kind of thing. Right. Where they just want that second one to be terrible. Right. You know, I just, I sensed that vibe. Hmm. It was kind of nasty. I felt I was getting it from all, all angles, but you just have to survive that one and just keep on. So, but this one, even though it's a bigger budget, it was, yeah. it was really smooth. I, you know, you have two showdowns, one over the budget. Right. That's a big one. And then one at the very end when they have to sign off on the film. Right. And say, okay, lock, that's it. Lock picture. Go make, do the final sound mix. And when was that's it? a huge, yeah. you have all these guys yeah. at the studio who, you know, they don't own the studio. They just have a job there. And if they, you know, their job's on the line, you yeah. have to kind of, it's their fear and their insecurity that you're having to deal with. So right. they have to, you have to convince them that, yeah, that's the film. And yeah, you know, sure, we could reshoot that and do all this. And wh- whatever the ideas are pouring out or cut, usually it's just cut things. Right. <laughs> cut a lot of things. Right. And, you know, no, you know, I'm writing five page facts is like, well, if we cut that, that won't right. make sense. And this won't make sense. Right now we have a tight movie that I think it all makes sense. You know, you can. Which is pretty much the length that's always been in the cutting process because um, so many movies these days are two and a half and three hours long. Yeah, I was saying this is like two hours and one minute. Right. And I was like, that's, that's nothing yeah. <laughs> compared to most films, but yeah. you can always cut more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was another showdown, but that's not bad for mm-hmm. a, a, for me, a big film to have two real kind of. Yeah, showdowns. All that, that's par for the course. But now, meanwhile, the studio's making Titanic. At the same time, they're making this film, and they can't. Um, so they all figured they would be out of jobs soon, and they were. Uh, it was pretty. It was a tough time. <laughs> it was the residual effect was pretty bad. Hmm. Yeah, because they can't do anything to Cameron, but they can, you know, take it out on me. So. <laughs> you know, the heads of production were like. Heads were rolling, you know, like it's their fault that the Titanic's over budget or something. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so they focused on these other films. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, cut a few thousand dollars. You know. Approximately what was the budget for this film? Um, Cause, 27 Because mm-hmm. it's such, um, the physical production is so beautiful and so mm-hmm. That realistic. sounds like a lot, you know, for me or for my other films. Right. But if you look at the Hollywood average no, now, that, which is... 40 yeah. to 60. Yeah. You know, you see films like As Good As It Gets or something. It's like $65 million. Right. You know, you're like, oh, that's a contemporary film with a few locations. Yeah. Mm. You know, I'm going, <laughs> I'm going, oh, we had 81 locations. I mean, yeah. our art department was like their jaw. It was just, you're kidding. There's no way you're going to, I mean, you know you're in trouble when the, the crew is asking you to cut scenes and, yeah. you know, the cast is like, just cut Toronto, please. You can't, we can't do it. It's just too much. We don't have, my production designer, Catherine Hardwick, mm-hmm. she and her whole crew deserve like medals yeah. for yes. w- what was achieved here. But, um, <laughs> she, she did that film, uh, Mad City and she said she had more money in her budget for one set on yeah. Mad City than the entire Newton Boys. How was Toronto film? How much of that was, um, I guess, like glass paintings or matte mm-hmm. work or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, that, we filmed that in San Antonio. We found mm-hmm. the one, like a beautiful green granite building that looked period. Right. And then there's a big parking garage there that became yeah. downtown Toronto. You know, so that budget was just enough that I could spend that 35000 yeah. and get the matte yeah. work with, you know, matte world. And, you know, they do a painting and you right. just put it in there. It's great. Now, how it hard was, was it for you to work um, to do a period film like this uh, in, in terms of how you approach... Just the, the visual style, the, the, the way people talk, thing, just the, the very mundane decisions about directing. Well, this was real. I mean, that was the fun part of this. That was the really rich experience of it all. Like, Dazed and Confused, I remembered it only too well, and everyone I was working with did too. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, a world we had lived in. Whereas this was, there's really no one alive 
hardly who was old enough to remember, oh, yeah, that's the kind of shoes we were wearing. You know, right. you have to be really old now. So we're really going strictly on historical research, and we did years of it. And yeah. um, you, know, you just try to nail all those the period details right and get the language right. Mm-hmm. But my real attitude toward the film was, yeah, it's a period piece, but it, I wanted it to feel like a contemporary film, like we filmed it then. It was my exact same approach I had on Dazed. I was like, let's nail all the period aspects. Right. But let's, you know, let's act like we made the film then. Right. You know, like it's, you know, I tell the actors this, a lot of, I think, period films, and uh, they, they tend to get kind of, oh, they can get kind of important or sort of, there's that stuffiness sort of enters in. But I didn't want that at all because I, I didn't think, the Newtons seemed very modern and, you know, really mm-hmm. with it. And that was a really kind of crazy time. I, I didn't want it to seem too precious, you know. It's like right. kind of a wild time. I wanted the film to be that tone, you know, just kind of fun and playful. And then cinematically, I wanted it to, you know, it starts off, you know, obviously like a silent film and yeah. a Western. And then by the end, the last third of the movie is a gangster film. Right. Kind of with the subgenre of heist film, more specifically. So I wanted, yeah. you know, you could call that sequence the great train robbery. Because right. it is the largest train robbery in U.S. history. And it's amazing no one's ever made a film about it. But I guess not enough quite happens in it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't end, you know, it just ends in court. And, you know, it's not dramatic enough for a, its own movie. But I, I thought it was great. I mean, you know, it's wonderful twists and turns. And so I love I loved the experience. And, you know, cinematically, it was kind of my um, homage to those those genres. One one section of the film that really feels like an homage that was beautifully done was the, the montage section about halfway through mm-hmm. um, where they're going through all the bank robberies and it's done to music. And just talk about... I mean that's something you don't you don't see much anymore. Yeah, well that was a lot. I think a lot of movies do. I've seen it in, in some movies, mm-hmm. but um, it was a lot of fun. I mean mm-hmm. I, I you know conceived of that. It's sort of like a Warner Brothers '30s or '40s gangster movie. You right. know, like I always say, like Don Siegel could have edited it. Right. You know he was an editor at that mm-hmm. time, edit, specializing in montages. You know you see any movie yeah. Yankee Doodle Danny. There's a big montage in the middle. You know just how to tell the story, <laughs> advance the ser- storytelling. But um, we really needed to do it here because they robbed 80 banks, but no one wants to sit through 80 bank robberies that are surprisingly similar, you know, right. in a lot of ways. Right. So it was they. We only get a handful in the movie, but yeah. they did. They were very prolific, so I needed to show that and just show Willis and Louise's relationship, and um, you know, Willis's investment in oil. There's a lot of I thought specifically storytelling mm-hmm. and time passing. So it's two years and a lot of activity. But. Hmm. One thing that's really been striking about your films, especially the more recent films like Suburbia and, and this, um, was the is the how comfortable the actors seem and the quality of the ensemble acting. Supposedly, you're famous for your rehearsal process. Uh, Parker Posey wrote a journal about oh. um, Suburbia about the um, <laughs> sort of encounter games. Did and anybody thi- read that? It's on it's on the internet. It's available you know, on the internet. That's all bullshit, you know. Okay, well. <laughs> That's a problem with the internet, of course. It is the <laughs> unregulated. Everything's true. But tell us, tell us about no, your. No, pro- telling stories like I came in in a gown and right. we did Shakespeare exercises, right. or I fed the cast mushrooms, and we did all this. I mean, right. she's crazy. I mean, okay. <laughs> I mean, we do sit for three weeks and rehearse. Okay, well, know, clearly we, that. We I mean, just the rehearsal process <laughs> to have that luxury it seems seems rare. It seems yeah. like. Um, so t- tell us the uh, the true story of how you work with work with it's actors. It's pretty boring, actually, <laughs> from the outside. It's, you just sit around and you, you talk a lot about your characters and mm-hmm. you know what's going on in the scene. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I've just always really. I guess I I was tr- 
trained as an actor for all, mm-hmm. for five years. I mean, I was always making films, but I was in acting classes. I, right. I didn't really want to be an actor, but yeah. I liked the environment creatively. So uh, it was just kind of fun. But I always liked rehearsal. It's kind of like if you're an athlete, I like practice more than the games. I like mm-hmm. rehearsal more than, you know, it's just fun. It's very mm-hmm. creative. I, I like to work with actors and treat them like collaborators. And yeah. they come up with a lot of lines. A lot of, um, you know, Dwight Yoakam, or I could, everyone in the cast, a lot of, Punchlines and funny things come yeah. out of a creative atmosphere where they feel free enough to to just say, "Hey, what if I, you know, did this?" Yeah. And and, and was it e- for all of them? Was it easy for them to to get the period feeling? Because it's remarkable to me how natural the performances seem. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's so much period. Although they all did a lot of period research, I gave them a lot of materials to read, and you know, you try to set a mindset to each character. It's like. You know, talking of say Jess, it's like okay, you were in World War One. You're lucky you didn't die there, or in the flu epidemic, or you know, here's what the world's gone through. Here's the state of you know, uh, write up memos about just say corruption. You know, the Harding administration is the most corrupt. Uh, you know, this flaunting of the Volstead Act is you know, no one respects the law. I mean, it, it was a different different vibe then. I mean, very. It was a crazy time. I mean, unregulated industries, banking and insurance. That's where Willis's attitude it just didn't come from nowhere. It was like, yeah, he had seen that kind of corruption. And, you know, he's kind of on the bottom of society from his birth. So, yeah, he had an attitude about it. So. What do you make of the uh, distinction these days between independent and studio film? Because it seems to be less and less meaningful these days, but you still... Yeah, I don't... I don't know. Um... It's, I don't get it really. It, it doesn't seem, I mean, people are grasping for some sort of definition, but it, it's never so simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, was it last year at the Oscars, all these supposed independent films? I mean, it's like the English patient had been at 20th Century Fox. That would have been a big studio film, right? And mm-hmm. then it went to Miramax and it became an independent film, but it's the same movie. Right. You know, it's just like, well, so, I mm-hmm. mean, it's, I don't know. I th- I would draw the distinction more like who's doing their personal films and mm-hmm. who's like originating their own material and, doing something and then there's another thing in the industry it's called uh, just getting hired to do a producer or a studio's film mm-hmm. you know when you you know looking for a job i guess and you get, you get hired to do a film the director's kind of just a little part of a big enterprise mm-hmm. not that there haven't been some really good films made that way oh, yeah. but um i haven't ever really put myself out there for that i've always stayed in texas and just try to get my own films made somehow but from a filmmaker's viewpoint, I mean, no filmmaker I know has a moral, you know, outlook on who's financing them. You know, it's like if some smaller company wants to give me a budget for this or a bigger company, you know, if you can have an okay relationship with whoever's financing you, I mean, it's necessary. I don't know anyone who's going to hand me $27 million out of their own pocket to make mm-hmm. a movie, you know, nor should they. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's someone's business to do it. So I don't know. I never had any problems, but I've always taken, you know, the four times I've taken money from people, I mean, dazed and ever since mm-hmm. days you know they all felt like the same process mm-hmm. so even though the budgets vary widely okay but so i don't i don't to answer your question i don't really know the distinction i don't know what right. you know independent film channel it's like you kind of know it when you see it right i think i mean to me kundun is a very independent film that's a you know even though it's disney mm-hmm. <laughs> financed it you can't get any more independent vision artistic vision than that right and even if you want it to the other extreme titanic that wasn't a studio wanting to make that. That was one guy saying, I'm, I want to make this story. So you can't say that's not James Cameron's movie. That's his personal thing. So 
So who knows? I've always admired those guys who you felt were making their own films, whether, you know, Spike Lee, Scorsese, of course, you know, Oliver Stone. You know, who would make Nixon except Oliver Stone? Right. You know, I really admire that. As a filmmaker, I think that's, that's ballsy to make such an intensely political film and get it made on a studio with all those actors and a big budget. I'd go, wow, you know. How much do you get involved in in marketing? I mean, once the film is made, then it has to be sold. And and here's a, and these days films there's a greater pressure because films open in so many theaters. What are the discussions like, and how much are you staying out of that? You're or? catching me at a weak moment on that subject <laughs> <laughs> with a film coming out in two right. less than two weeks. I'm just yeah. sort of no. It's it's by far my least favorite and most frustrating part because you're used to having complete control right. over everything. And then suddenly you realize you have no control. You have a thing called meaningful consultation. And it, it means they <laughs> send you a poster and you, or, you know, whatever materials, right. TV ad, and you go, call them back and go, hey, this is really terrible. But what if we try, and they just go, well, you know, we've already printed them, you know, or whatever. <laughs> so it's like, that's meaningful consultation. Right. You know, whatever. I don't want to rag on them too bad, but it's just kind of, you know, it's, I'm very much out of the loop. Right. And it's a drag. Okay. Cause I, I do have opinions. About it that are pretty strong. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the film some more. Let's um, let's see if the audience has questions about it. Oh, so I we have can... an anecdote I wanted to tell you okay. guys just before, because I... I haven't told this yet, and I've introduced the film or talked about it a few couple times now, but I keep forgetting. When um, Doc was arrested, everybody laughed when he realized in 1968 he was arrested <laughs> for robbing a bank. Well, they went and got his, um, you know, looked at his, see if he had an FBI file. And sure enough, um, at that moment, the FBI numbers were up into like 17 million, and he had a pre-existing file. His number was like 619. <laughs> he had the oldest file active on record. <laughs> you know, there were just wonderful little bits like that we were hmm. discovering throughout this. It was amazing. Hmm. And Willis was driving that getaway car. I, I didn't know for a long time, but then I met in this process a lot of people who knew him, and hmm. one guy particularly from Uvalde told me, Oh, yeah, he's definitely. So, you know, I always felt Willis didn't want that to get out there. But hmm. uh, anyway, I thought it was pretty funny and pretty telling. You know? hmm. How did Claude f feel about the film? I mean, I have to, since obviously none of the Newtons are here to... Right. To, no, uh, Claude loved it. And that that's really great. That's the only guy I wanted, I cared about who, mm -hmm. who what they really thought. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to, I wanted Claude to feel like I had made the film that they would like, that he thought was accurate. No, Claude... Claude really likes it. He said Matthew actually scared him a lot, that he was so much like Willis. Right, yeah. You know, he would hit that, kind of that, there's these guys from West Texas, that old West Texas man voice where he gets up high like that, you know? And uh, <laughs> when Matthew would do that, hell boy, they just did! You know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I mean, Matthew grew up around that, and Claude said he was just, the hairs on the back of his neck would stand up sometimes. He's like, he was in the room with Willis. Hmm. You know, Matthew had done a lot of research. He had all these, we had 18 hours of audio tapes, of the Joe and oh, Willis, right. we had the footage, and it was a great opportunity for the cast to, hmm. to really dig into those characters. Yeah. Okay, let's hear your questions right down here. I just want to know how they're going to reissue Claude's book. Yeah, I've been um, Claude's book. It's the oral history, the Newton Boys' portrait of an outlaw gang. It's a great book. Um, um, a small press in Austin did it. Came out a couple years ago called um, the State House Press. You could probably order it. No, I, I've been interested. I've, for a couple of years, I've been, you know, this movie's going to come out. You'll have these, you know, hunks on the cover. Don't you want to, like, sell the, you know, wouldn't it be an obvious marketing thing? But no one's interested. Hmm. I can't, you know, I can't pull any more tea. I, you know, I don't know what to do. Okay. <laughs> it's just okay. hard to get just people interested in things you think are cool. Okay. Uh, go ahead. And then you. 
Given the nature of your past work, um, this film seemed or felt a little bit like a departure to me. I'm just curious as to if you had had the opportunity to make the new boys after Before Sunrise, would you then have gone on and made Suburbia after that? I don't know. It's hard to say if I, you know, one film at a time. You don't really know what you want to do next until you're completely finished. Hmm. Kind of you like personally what you feel like you should do next, both in film and in your life. You know what you need personally. I remember after Dazed, I want I knew I wanted to do Before Sunrise next. I'd been thinking about that a long time because Dazed had been a for me a really big project, and I wanted to do something really intimate, just small with a really small crew, and that was just my own like balance. Regardless of how Days did, good or bad, or I had already kind of knew what I wanted to do next, so that was a. But I mean, yeah, I know this seems like a departure, but every film I've done, like when I before Sunrise came out, and people were like this seems like a you know what the hell is this? You know, I mean, after Days with all these characters and fun and you know to make this little romance, this little intimate romance seemed like a big departure, but now they kind of they sort of blend together, I guess, <laughs> in some. Well, there's some connection there now that they're didn't feel like there was at the time. And I think this will feel the same way. Not now, but I think eventually. Okay, right here. Do you think with the Newtown Boys, the reason why they weren't known in history because it didn't end tragically? I mean, it's sort of ironic. Yeah, the reason the Newtons aren't known is it's really simple in my mind. It's like they didn't kill people and they didn't get caught. So an outlaw, if you're an outlaw, your goal would be to not <laughs> be known, I would think. So <laughs> they were very good at what they did, but that led to their own obscurity. And most of the outlaws we know, Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde and Baby Felix, you know, all those, um, it's because they were either psychopaths who killed a lot of people and captured, captured the imagination of the public, or like Hoover was pulling that whole, his stunt, create a public enemy number one, even if they didn't deserve that, you know, some small time criminal, and then they, you know, machine gun Kelly or something, and then they, you know, gun him down and look like he was doing his job. You know, Hoover was, that that was his method. So, but yeah, you don't go down in history unless you're, uh, you know, kill people, I guess. But that's what I liked about the news. I'm not interested in psychopaths. I'm not interested in people who just want to kill people. I mean, Willis particularly hated Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, he thought they were just, he had put them up one night when they were on their, uh, you know, crime spree. And he just thought they were... <laughs> He just thought they were idiots. I mean, he just like, he was like, silly kids, you know, bound to get themselves killed, you know, <laughs> shot that old sheriff. Someone got in front of him, they'd shoot at him. He's like, he just had no respect for them, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and he was really jealous when the film came out. He was, he was quoted as saying, like, they'll pay big money for my story, you know. <laughs> and actually, actually. Maybe that's why he started robbing banks again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> actually, and he had sent his uh, lawyer to California in 1948 to sell his story to Hollywood, but there, there were no takers. No takers then, barely takers now. <laughs> okay, right there. You, sir? Oral history reports a tornado wrecked the train. Yes, um, during production. We were lucky in our production. We had a 56-day shoot, and we never really lost time for all the craziness that was going on around us. Um, had bad weather. or Two weeks before we were filming, a tornado flipped our train. We were eight miles away from a tornado blew through. You probably heard about it last year. Um, killed a lot of people, like eight miles from where we were filming. Hmm. I mean, I was in my trailer. You know, we just got there. <laughs> and someone says, uh, you might not want to be in your trailer. There's a tornado, like, right down the street. And I was like, oh, really? And I, was, and I went to this vault. We were shooting in a vault. I was just hmm. there at the beginning of the day. We had just shown up, and the sky looked really 
bizarre. I'd never hmm. seen a sky like this, some low pressure work. But anyway, you know, I'm obsessed with, you know, what scene I'm doing. So we, we're filming this scene. It's just pouring rain outside. We're in a vault. And then uh, it quits raining. We go outside and there's, oh, a tornado touched down, you know, near here. Like three people are dead. And we're like, wow, you're hmm. kidding. And then the body count. And we're outside and it quit raining, so we keep filming. And then the body count just kept increasing wow. all night. By the end of the night, we had loaned them a generator and they kind of used for a morgue. Like 40 people, wow. right? eight miles from where we were shooting. Wow. And it was really sad, but you know, we never lost any time <laughs> shooting. It was very bizarre. Huh. I mean, I didn't, you know, what do you do? It's like, you know, you make the day. Wow. <laughs> okay, right there. Thanks to David. You're the only film work I know. I can say I knew you when, since I spent the last two weekends here seeing every film you made. Oh, wow. And the, what really impresses me is not that you had leaps, but I think quantum leaps in terms of just how each film had so much more to say. But running through the films as a theme, my impression was always corruption. The corruption of, of life and the corruption that everybody has to deal with. And the fact that lives are led and exploited by those who would just use everybody else. And I thought the drunk in the film that you saw last night, Timmy, really almost said it all. I mean, every one of your films has just been explosive in, this, in the message that it's had, that it's... There's so much bullshit, and these kids have so much to have to deal with. It's just incred incredible, and it's just unjust. Well, thank you. I'm glad you picked that up. I mean, it's, it's you know, like people think Days is this, like, fun comedy and stuff, but I see at the core of it, it's kind of a horror film or some kind of tragic thing that, um, you know, Mitch is the initiation into being a teenage male jerk, you know, kind of, he's this innocent kid, and by the end of the night, he's, you know, but people, you know, it's funny and everything, but to me, it was about, you know, initiation and kind of being corrupted in a way that inevitably we all are in some way or another. I guess you're sort of stuck with your own personality. You, you, it finds its way into your attitude toward everything in your writing or the way you would direct an actor or just what you would be interested in subject matter wise. So it's, it's always there. But I can say the Newtons were the first guys in my films who were fighting back, you know, <laughs> doing, <laughs> They're the most like active guys I've ever portrayed. That they're like Willis says, I'm not going to take it lying down, you know. So he's, <laughs> in his own way, he's, you know, he's active. He's doing something. Hmm. Okay, right here. Um, yeah, I'd just like to ask you a little bit. Maybe you could speak a little bit about uh, how what it was like in Austin and what's going on in Austin culturally, and also if you could speak a little bit about. Um, you know, just making Slacker and the fun for Slacker and what Austin was like back then. Are you thinking about moving there? Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's really crowded now. There's a lot of fun. No, I'm kidding. No, um, no, Austin, you know, I've been there about 13, 14 years or something, and it's it's really, it's, it's fun. You know, it's my own hometown. I've been involved in a film society there. I started in 1985, and, you know, we show a lot of movies, and, I've seen the film interest just grow and grow. Like when I did Slacker, it was like, I was always kind of the weird, the film guy. You know, everybody else is a musician, and I was just this <laughs> film guy who showed movies and, you know, I was projecting films or shooting my little Super 8 films or, you know, whatever I was doing. I was kind of everybody's friend, but I was like this film guy. So, <laughs> you know, I just saw that, you know, just, I don't know. When Slacker got made, it was a really weird thing. I mean, no one made a film, especially people made films, but they never got seen. That was the bizarre thing. Austin has this sort of, um, oh, fear of success kind of thing that <laughs> you see in the music industry. Like, as soon as you get known, everybody hates you, that kind of thing. But I haven't suffered that in the film. There's not enough filmmakers there to be, like, 
backbitey jealous kind of stuff. So it's it's a it's a good atmosphere. But like the, our film site, we have like a, a thousand members. We show 136 films a year. We you know, I can show any film. We'll get 350, 400 people come. You know, to an Ozu movie. You know, hmm. just 300. So. It's a great, it's a good time, but it has changed over the years. The, the rents have doubled, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's like San Francisco or something. Okay, uh, you, and then we'll go all the way in the back. Go ahead. What was the significance of using a song written by John Sayles in the movie? Is that John? Um, no, 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 that's the real John Sayles. And he's a friend, and he had um, kind of taken a look at the script and had some notes, and that was one... He wrote the lyrics to a song. That's a traditional melody. But he wrote some lyrics, just a passage, that first one. And um, my other co-screenwriter had written a bunch of passages. But I picked those two to have the girls sing. So he just came up with those lyrics. But uh, it's the same same John Seals. <laughs> okay, all the way in the he had, back. He had done sort of a rewrite. On yes. It helped out. I heard a rumor that you and some other people were going to open up here in a studio in Austin. And whether or not that's true, I don't know if Pipe Dreamworks. <laughs> I mean, the thing of opening up your—I think you're thinking maybe a sound stage or something like that, which is plenty ambitious for Austin, you know. To, but uh, I, I have a screening room and things like that. That's a big deal in Austin to have a screening room, <laughs> much less a studio or anything like that. But uh, we have enough facilities where you can do everything there, and enough crew people, but. There will be no, you know, mini industry there in Texas. There just, there won't be, you know. I had, I could, did everything in Texas except the very final sound mix. So it was a couple weeks up at Skywalker Ranch. But there's people who have, I mean, Texans want to own everything and they get really big ideas. But, um, it'd be a dumb business thing to think you could support something like that. These places in LA can barely support it and they've got films year round and they, they can barely make it. So it's a bad business to get into on a lot of levels. I wouldn't suggest it. <laughs> okay, right here. It seems like you have a lot of experience with non-professional actors. I'm wondering if you could speak to the challenges of, of working with non-professional actors. Um, yeah, I've never had any stigma if someone was a professional or non-professional, particularly in the smaller parts. But I don't know. I mean, it depends on the role. I, I'll look at a role and I say, this could potentially be played by a non-professional. And a lot of those were in days because I think kids are very, um, the younger, the more natural, and you don't even want them to be a professional actor, really, because that means they've had some stage mom telling them how to smile and do everything. And they're probably not that natural anyway. But you just find an authentic person. But the casting is the key to that. You've got to find someone. I mean, my attitude toward actors is almost anyone could be an actor if, if they just had the personality to allow themselves to be on camera. If they, if they could get past that barrier, like they would agree to do it, which is a big part, really. And then... Almost anyone could deliver a certain kind of performance, I think, with the right atmosphere, you know, that you create for them. I had non-professionals in this movie. The, the, when they robbed the first bank on horseback, that very first, the primitive robbery, um, the banker, he has a couple lines like, that's my banker. You know, that's, <laughs> he's just a kind of a friend of mine. My, um, the, uh, the tool pusher, the oil well guy who's kind of swindling Willis out of his money. That's Matthew's older brother. He's a real West Texas oil guy. You know, I met him five year, four years ago at Matthew's graduation party. And he always stayed in my mind, like, he's a real character, just the way he talks and all that. And we improvised a lot of that scene in rehearsals. His name's Rooster, Rooster McConaughey. 
<laughs> not his real name, but uh, <laughs> so he came in and he he that was his line. You're like, hell, boy, you ain't gonna get enough oil out of that hole to part your hair. And then it was their idea to punch one another. You know, things like that. You know, we 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 worked all that up. So. The good thing about non-professionals, if they're too professional, they come in, okay, what are my lines? Oh, I've learned my lines. You know, like they're all set. I want people like, well, I wouldn't really say this. I, I, how about this? Or, you know, you get a freshness that they bring to it that I think is important, in, especially in the kind of the one-scene actors. I mean, there's a ton. Of, they're just called day players in the industry. They work one day usually and do their scene. And those parts are really challenging to me. I, I really want those to be distinct and have some character to them. So casting is really important and just... Letting that person bring you something, you know, whatever that might be, but it's up to you to, you're picking and choosing. And, the, and that kind of improv in rehearsal is, um, it's you just really manipulating, trying to get their greatest hits, you know. But they might not be able to tell you what is really funny or not, it's just coming out of them. Slacker was, was that completely. No one in that film was a professional actor. You know, I was probably the closest. I'm the first <laughs> character in it, and I was like the only one who had been in acting classes or something, so. No, I mean, every, but everybody has acted at some point, junior high, high school, you know, almost everyone's acted. And we're all actors anyway, right? So it was just my, my working attitude on that film was, hey, I just want to get interesting people, just interesting people, and then I'll find a, whatever part, I'll cast them in the part that they seem closest to personality-wise, and then we'll work up the scene from there. So it's always fun. And those are the most satisfying, actually, when you a non-professional and you you think you make a really good scene out of it. But on the other hand, it's really fun to work with really technically skilled actors, too, depending on what you're trying to get out of them. Like someone like Juliana Margulies or, you know, Ethan Dwight. All these guys are the whole main cast. Vince D'Onofrio, those guys are just top-notch, like really great actors. So that's a whole nother level of working that's equally, you know, challenging and satisfying. Dwight Yoakam was an inspired choice, huh? Yeah, I mean, and I cast Dwight the same way I cast almost anybody. I, I hadn't ever seen him act. I guess I'd seen his bit part in Red Rock West. I hadn't seen Sling Blade, but I just met him, and we talked for a long time. And I just said, this is a fascinating guy. I just like this guy. He's really interesting. You know, I just find him fascinating. I like the way his mind works. I like everything about him. At that point, we were talking about him potentially being a brother. It was that early on in the process. I didn't know. I thought maybe he could be Jess or something, just my first hunches. But then uh, I really wanted Ethan to be Jess, and I thought, I called up Dwight and said, I want you to look at Glasscock. I think you'd be a really interesting Glasscock. And he, he liked the part a lot and he mm -hmm. agreed to do it. And he became, he became yeah. <laughs> Glasscock, that kind of very specific little nitroglycerin carrying. Right. There's a part of Dwight that's very specific. <laughs> that's how he is as an actor. But hmm. I mean, he's a no bullshit actor. He's very focused. If, if you would have told me Dwight Yoakam was a Juilliard trained actor who'd been doing it his whole life, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Hmm. He was like that. But, uh, I think he's a really wonderful actor. And yeah. he, he came up with tons of stuff. He'd call me up in the middle of the night like, hey, what if I, you know, he'd have a line or, you know, or something. He's, he's an amazing creative person, but he keeps his music and his um, film worlds very separate. He wasn't like the guy sitting around the set with his guitar or anything. He never, <laughs> you would not know. He didn't, even at our party last night, he didn't get up on stage and sing a song or anything. You know, Ethan did, of course. You know, I thought it's stupid. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Dwight, just the two worlds, acting, Music and I keep them very separate. How hard is it to keep on top of the acting when the when the pace of shooting is so intense? Well, that's where rehearsals come in. Yeah. I mean, we rehearse. That's all done before if, the yeah, shooting it's that begins. Three weeks, you've made a lot of those creative decisions. And yeah. then on certain scenes, I rehearse on weekends too, like the upcoming week. If there's a big scene, like the big scene with Matthew and Juliana when she confronts him, mm -hmm. 
we rehearsed that a lot. We like we would rehearse it every week before we did it, and just building up writers like Woody Allen or someone. They don't need to rehearse. He doesn't really need to talk to his actors that much because it's like, here's the scene, here are the words, maybe change a few words, but that's it. And it's it's kind of perfect in its own way quite often. Mm -hmm. So I never feel that way. Maybe it's, I'm just really critical of my own writing or something. I just want it to become something else or find something new in it via the actors. So I want to hear them do it a lot, and I'm looking forward to the ideas I'm going to have to rewrite it and change it. So you're almost rewriting through them at a certain point. But that takes a lot of time sometimes. So, you know, a lot of rehearsals, but you uh, you just have to be ready. You know, you have to, I don't ever show up on a set and go, well, what's this about? A lot of films in Hollywood, and this is why those budgets are so long, the schedules are so long, and everything goes over budget. Yeah. Um, no rehearsal. They've, they've met a few times, the director and actors, right. and then they're on the set, and they're sitting down for the first time with the whole crew waiting around, you're sitting down and talking about the scene really for the first time. Hmm. Which, and then three hours later, you're setting up the first shot. You just wasted three hours yeah. of a $150,000 day. You know, it's just kind of, it seems really like, I don't know. I guess I'm <laughs> more frugal in that sense. It's just not the biggest waste of time. But you were confident, like, when the shooting started. I mean, it's, I would think it must be strange to show up on the set and everybody's, like, dressed in its own costumes. And, like, did, was there ever, did you ever wonder, can I really, you know, can I do this? Or you just, no, I, you okay. know, <laughs> well, you know, everyone's dressed in costume, just the actors, you know, it's like yeah. the magic, just what you see on the screen, but you look, you know, 240 degrees and it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. a parking lot and a, you know, very 1997 when we were shooting. Yeah. So no, I was never too overwhelmed. Some of the scenes are really big, but I really look forward, like the ballroom scene where mm -hmm. I had that long camera move and all that. That was, I mean, it's really challenging, but it's, it's fun. That's when you feel like you're... I, the great variety of this film, like one day we'd be blowing up a bank, one day we'd be doing a ballroom scene with dancing, bands, music, mm -hmm. you know, cars and action scenes, and then you know, then we'd be doing these intimate scenes like yeah. like Matthew and Juliana and stuff like that. So it was it was hitting a lot of different. It was a very a varied experience. So it was it was fun. There was something to look forward to every day that seemed different. You know. Okay, right back there. Yeah, I got a couple questions regarding Dazed and Confused, which I just got to say I think is an absolute masterpiece, just unbelievable stuff. But um, first question, I saw an early cut of it that had a pretty substantial subplot about the stolen statues, and I was just wondering what the rationale was behind cutting Were that you one of those test screenings or something? No, I sort of found a copy somewhere. Yeah. God, see, that's the thing about studios, you know, they tape, <laughs> you know, you, it's an early cut of the film. And uh, it was just too long. I mean, my first cut of that was just too long. It really dragged. And, you know, I, wanna, I want it to be paced right. That's just my job. You always, it's the, kind of a heartbreaking process. You cut things that are in themselves kind of good or interesting, but it's really kind of dragging down the hole. So it was more you than the studio that wanted to cut it? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't edit with the studio. You know, I'm, they don't, you know, I'm making... I'll watch a film with an audience, and then I'll, I'll judge how it feels, and, you know, so, I, you know, Days, is, that's, that's my cut, you know, what's up there, the final film is what I wanted there, but not that that wouldn't be a good Laserdisc track or something, some of those scenes are, are really funny in, in their own way, but just overall the film, the film meanders enough and has no story as it is, so, you know, at least you want to, <laughs> I don't know, you know, it's, it's a tough thing. 
And but one other thing I was wondering, there were two scenes in it where I wasn't sure if you were referencing something or if it was just coincidental. I figured you'd be the one to ask. Um, the first, first scene when um, Slater was buying a bag from Pickford and asked to, to borrow money from Pink so I'll pay you back Tuesday. I was wondering if that was like a Popeye thing going on. Obviously, yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, wimpy, wasn't it? Wasn't yeah. it? And when the party at the Moon Tower, when Mitch was all fucked up and that disoriented shot of him walking through the party, I was wondering if that was a Kytel Mean Streets thing going on there. I think sort of, but I think I used a different method. I, I tied a string from Wiley to the camera guy, and so it had a little more give, a little more, like if they could get closer but they couldn't get farther away, and I had it focused on the, the full length. But um, the, the, Kytel, the drunken Kytel, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an homage to that in, in that way. I wanted to get that same kind of feeling, but I... Um, I didn't want to put him on a dolly. or I, in, He must have done it in Mean Streets. The camera had to have been attached to him, yeah. like really physically like on him because he ends up you know, on, the, on the bar at the end. But you know, Spike Lee's done that in every movie. He does the, you know, the, yeah. the Spike Lee on the dolly shot. And I just, that, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so yeah. But there, there's tons of things in that. Like when the, the, the mom comes out with a shotgun, when the, that's right out of Night of the Hunter, when Lillian Gish comes out with a shotgun. Right. I mean, I could, I could annotate, you know, films with little things like that that are just, you know, fun little bits from, you know, nods to other films and things. Okay, in the back row there. Uh, yeah, stick on Days and Confused. Um, like you mentioned how you thought it was Mitch's story before, and I think what's great about it is there's a lot of different characters whose stories are really developed, even though a lot of it's subtle. So I was wondering how autobiographical, and if so, which character you are. And if you're really um, Mitch touching his nose like eight times, did you tell him to do that? Or is he <laughs> I like that when he did that. I mean, it was a little... It was like a self-conscious thing, but he's talking to like the girls and he's out and he feels really uncomfortable. So I just kind of like that. And, and like in Suburbia where Giovanni Rabisi, Jeff is biting on this, his little string from his... I like little gestures like that sometimes. It just shows they're uncomfortable or you're doing something. Was that like him though? Or so you like do it and you said keep on doing it or you just let go? Yeah, he did it initially, but I didn't, you know... If you don't like it, it's my fault because I let him do it, you know, and I... I didn't tell him not to, and I, I said, keep, you know, that, that's fine, you know, so, you know, that was, a, but autobiographically speaking, I think it was Wiley who said, you know, like, in a dream, every character's you, well, he said that was me in, in days, like, I think I had a, a personal relation with every character in that movie that I felt really close to. So you're not just Pickford driving around smoking joints all No, I'm, I, that, I'm pretty far from Pickford, actually, I had a friend, I had friends exactly like certain people, but uh, I wasn't. You know, I definitely knew them all. But I was probably closest to uh, Pink, Jason London's character, as older, and then maybe Wiley, definitely Wiley. Um, but everybody, the, the guys, Mike and Tony, the guys who write on the newspaper staff, who's kind of nerdy. You know, that was me too, but I also played sports, so I was kind of like Pink. You know, I was sort of, like every teenager, you feel like you're kind of among everybody. You know, like you have... It's one thing when I interviewed um, people for that movie, they say, oh, I really relate to Pink because he, he hangs out with all the groups. You know, he's kind of a jock. He's kind of a newspaper nerd, you know, and he's you know, kind of a stoner. And people, oh, I have friends in all the groups. And I said, well, what group are you in? And they're like, oh, I, you know, no one labels themselves, but they have, oh, here are my stoner friends, here are my jock <laughs> friends, here are my, but, you know. <laughs> and every one of, everybody who came in said that. So it's just like, oh, we all want to label and categorize everybody else, but we're all free agents. You know, it's a great, great setup. You know. hmm. 
Okay, right here? Yeah, I was hoping that you would talk a little bit about plow and if you had a preset conceived structure for the film uh, before you did it and, uh, and just many things about that because I, I really loved it a lot. Oh, thank you. Um, this is a Super 8 um, feature before Slacker, in case any, for anybody who doesn't know Plant. Well, I didn't really have a lot of preconceived notions when I first started filming about what the film would be about. I just had some really strict, I say, you know, aesthetic rules. Like, I wasn't ever going to move the camera. It was just going to be these sh kind of static shots. And um, I wanted it to be about travel and, uh, like, the mindset of travel. I had a, kind of a, a feel for it, but I just kind of would just wander around and... and Oh, this could be a scene, or you know, I was just setting up a camera and pushing the button and like going and doing something, or you know. So I think I had more of an aesthetic agenda rather than a, um, I don't know, any kind of content related. So it was a evolving process. There was no script or anything. That's when the film was written in the editing. A lot of films they say editing is where you rewrite the film or you discover the film. I've never felt that except in that film. That I always like. I've never been a oh we'll save it in the editing it ups the ante of what you're doing on the day. It's like, no, we're not making this in the editing room. It's going to be easy to cut together. I know exactly how I want it to cut. This has to work now, you know? We're not going to you know, be able to save it later if it's not good now. So rewriting and editing is something I've not really done. I've worked on pacing and things, but I don't think I'm significantly finding a story that I didn't know existed until I got to the editing room, except that film where I, I really had no story. It was just all these shots. And, and I wasn't sure what... I was filming a lot of things that you wouldn't believe that, that I, I cut out immediately. Like some really fun things with groups of people, like, you know, drunken evenings and, you know, all, all kinds of weird stuff. Because I didn't really know what the film would be. I just knew kind of what, what I wanted it to feel like in general. But um, it was in the editing that I immediately threw out all this, like all the fun stuff and just left the boring stuff. You know? <laughs> <laughs> all the way in the back, you've been waiting. I like that it was different, that it, like I said earlier, these were active characters. They weren't, they weren't introspective. I kind of liked their purity. They weren't introspective. They weren't self-analytical. They were just pure, like, emotion and action. So, you know, I, I like that. And I wasn't constrained to that time period. I mean, I was telling an epic story. And for the first time, I felt I was telling a, a great story. So that was about a story you know, as much as the characters, but I still want it to be a character piece. And I think what it maybe does have in common with the other ones is that it, probably their relation within the scenes, but it's not, it's not really as much dialogue driven. That the dialogue itself isn't the subject. It's, it's the story that life and times and all these other elements. So, but that, that was fun for me. I mean, that's how I felt it was the best way to tell this particular story. And as far as, uh, future projects, I have a, a couple, um, things I'm working on, one's about a, they're true stories, kind of in the, I, I like this, I mean, it was fun on Newton Boys, and I'm not, no career plan here or anything, but I find myself currently attracted to a lot of uh, true stories that I'm trying to make work as films. Not just, they're not 
traditional stories that would um, scream out movie. They're always like tough. Like Newton's didn't really scream out movie, although I thought it was a great story. But you know, they're not like Grisham novels or anything. They're uh, <laughs> you know, one's about a factory worker and one's um, about Texas high school football. So, uh, and then I have another one's about an, uh, a murder in East Texas, kind of a bizarre. Hilarious! Don't come on. Uh, <laughs> murder, believe it or not. So uh, I don't know. I don't know exactly which one will be next, but I have two of the scripts written, and I'm sort of working on the other ones. So who knows? We'll take one more question. Uh, I wanted to ask about Before Sunrise, which doesn't really fit anywhere actually in the spectrum, if you want to call it that. Fits into the time constraint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's Yeah, that's a good assumption that it was the most transformed. I think I had the a really solid idea of the beginning, the middle, the end, what the story was, what it what it was and what it wasn't. What I didn't really, what I couldn't have possibly imagined was the relation between the characters. I mean, I can imagine it. I had a script. But I knew for it to work, because it doesn't really work on paper, which is amazing. I even got the film made. Ethan, the whole movie, was saying, Rick, how do we get this film financed? Who's, why are they giving us money to do this? <laughs> but um, that was the challenge. And it was really me and Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke sitting in a room for that same three-week period, um, rewriting the script and finding new things. And I even had scenes in there, what's a lot of people's favorite scene, when they, the pretend phone call, near the, kind of near the end, in the script, even when we started production, I had seen in cafe, their relation goes to a new level, something very in intimate for the first time, some new intimacy, I, you know, had to happen about here. You know, Sid Field screenwriting, you know, right here. So, um, <laughs> and we talked about it, you know, we shot that about three or four, it was a 25 day shoot, I think we shot that maybe day 19 or so. so we had been working, and it was like, okay, now, we had ideas. And Julie had told me this idea of she, that she did with her girlfriends, you know, this little thing when they were younger. I said, you know, that's really good. Let's, you know, so we worked that up into a scene, and, and those were the, the thoughts we had about that scene. So it was a wonderful collaborative experience with them. And Julie and Ethan, they're really interesting. They're both, like, really smart. They're, all, they're both writers. They're both filmmakers. They've made short films, and they're just kind of, brilliantly creative people and it was just a it was a really wonderful time very like I keep saying intimate you know it's just the three of us and you know on that level one little trivial frivolous, frivolous maybe question I have a debate going among some people do they sleep together or not ah that well if it's not in the film then it's in, in your imagination I don't know <laughs> it depends on where you are you yeah know, well that's life. yeah what do you think you think yes? Well, we'll get your head out of the gutter. What are you <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> no, they, they probably do. I don't know. But if they did, did he use a condom? <laughs> and if they did, well, no. Okay. <laughs> On that note? No, I don't know. Um, okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.